Buddhist frame, it has three primary components. One is there's a sense of balance, right? Walking, un- walking, walking evenly over uneven ground. Uh, Shantideva as well is Tibetan uh, monastic great teacher, I think around the 8th century of the Common Era, roughly 12, 1300 years after the Buddha uh, lived and taught. Uh, Shantideva said, the world is covered with thorns and sharp stones. What shall we do? Well, we could cover the world with leather or we could put on a pair of shoes. That's that balance. That's equanimity. Okay? Second characteristic of it, it's sustained. It's steady. Okay? It's easy to be equanimous, right? When you're just chilling, having breakfast with friends, life is good, they keep bringing you the coffee, <laughs> nice people, sun is shining, you're kicking it out there and you know, Woodacre or whatnot at the Two Bird Cafe. That's an unsolicited plug for a great breakfast with friends this morning. That's easy, but what do you do when you're trying to get a toddler into a car seat who doesn't want to go, right? Or you're in traffic and people are making rude gestures at you with the fingers of their middle fingers of their hands, or you know, or you, you get one of those black bordered letters from the IRS, you know, you know you're really in trouble. Or you get a scary diagnosis, or a friend uh, passes away. You know, I was at a memorial yesterday for a dear friend who died. And uh, how do we maintain our equanimity then? You know, there's a quote in here that you'll come to see. Um, I think it's from Upandita, who says, basically, Buddhist practice, and I think we could generalize that uh, to many forms of practice. The Buddha had no monopoly on wisdom and effort and loving kindness and compassion. Um, Buddhist practice is to expand the range of life experiences in which we are free. That's the steadiness brought to bear. And also, presence. We're engaged with the world in equanimity. Again, it's fairly easy to be equanimous with our eyes closed you know, on retreat, although as anyone who's been on retreat knows, it's often very not equanimous with your eyes closed sitting there <laughs> on retreat. But anyway, if we're just kind of withdrawn, we're disengaged, you know it's easier. But to be truly engaged in the world, to come out into the marketplace as it were, uh, that is more challenging. And so... Uh, we can uh, and you know, be involved in social justice. We can speak truth to power. Uh, we can cheer on our favorite sports team, go the 49ers, uh, you know, stuff like that, while at the same time remaining untroubled by what streams through the mind. You know, the Buddha's, one of his great contributions was a kind of uh, revolution and rejection of both empty formalisms, you know, that was the practice of his day, just if you do certain rituals and you pay the priest, you'll go to heaven, essentially. You'll have a fortunate rebirth. The Buddha said, no, 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 it's not about action, it's about intention. It's about the quality of your mind, fundamentally. And also, uh, the Buddha uh, turned away from radical asceticism of his day, the, the notion that if you just shut the whole thing down, uh, somehow that's the way to... Awakening, And he said, no, we need to be in life. There's a place for wholesome pleasures. There's a place for wholesome desire. The desire that others be happy is a wholesome desire. That desire to take a drink of water when you're thirsty or use the bathroom when you need to. These are wholesome desires. Relief is a very underrated pleasure, you know? <laughs> so there, there's a place for this stuff, you know, but how to, especially as householders, you know, living in the 
lap of luxury, most of us, not all of us, by any historical standard, you know, um, and uh, surrounded by delights and constantly bombarded with messages designed by the greatest minds of our generation to stimulate more desire, you know, more wanting uh, through advertising or other forms of media. You know, how do we be with those things? How do we eat well, love well, raise children well, uh, vote well, care well? How do we do all those things without getting knocked off our balance? That's where presence comes in. We're in relationship with the world and not disturbed by it. This is the essence of uh, equanimity. The problem is, as the point gets down here, is that the ancient circuitry of the brain is constantly tipping us in the drive states in which there's an underlying internal sense of deficit or disturbance. And as we'll see a little bit later, there's also a kind of auto-craving that the brain has evolved that makes it continually look for a threat even though it's unthreatened, continually look for some new opportunity even though it's full, and continually track some kind of issue in relationship just in case. Right? That's sort of an <laughs> auto-craving. Right? How do we work through uh, the vulnerability of the brain to drop into felt states of deficit or disturbance, let alone work through, even when there's no felt sense of deficit or disturbance, there's no actual basis there's no actual condition that would give rise to craving, but there's still this auto-craving tendency, you know, that's hardwired into us through Mother Nature, who wants us all, who wants her little critters to always be a little afraid, a little hungry, and a little lonely to stay alive, right? Um, how do we do that? That's the challenge today. So I hope to explore that. Okay, great. All right. So a little definition here, also from Shantideva. Um, you know, it's this combination of penetrative insight joined with a kind of peace in the body, a calm abiding. Calm abiding is code language for concentration, uh, steadiness of mind, tranquility practice, a kind of deeply rooted peace in the body. And penetrative insight is, is that clarity which over time and with practice becomes increasingly granular, increasingly in the moment, granular, and increasingly aware of little distinctions that continually sees the transient nature of all experience. And because all experience is transient, uh, insubstantial, phenomenologically, it's incapable of being a stable basis for fundamental happiness. That's the insight into impermanence and the kind of empty quality of experience. So the combination of the two, a kind of growing uh, peacefulness in the body and ease in the body, which means, I speak as a psychologist here, a gradual disentanglement from trauma, a gradual release around wounds or deficits or lacks, you know, growing up or during adulthood. You know, that's involved in, that's necessary in many ways for true calm abiding, also combined with penetrative insight. There is a place for insight. There is a place for wisdom. There is a place for understanding. On the Noble Eightfold Path, there is a place for wise view, right view. So a little bit of what we'll be getting in today will be conceptual. The Buddhist teachings are conceptual in certain regards, unapologetically so. There's a place for that. But at the end of the day, if these teachings are not dropped into the body, you know, they, they, don't, have, they don't work. They don't have traction. So 
the whole point even of the conceptualizations today is to let it sink in. And in a little bit, I'll also talk about helping things really sink in. Okay? So now I'm going to have a little movie uh, of the essence of equanimity. You can get this movie online. It's quite extraordinary. Um, it, it's a little difficult to find, but if you go on my website, I, I, realized, I discovered anew that in this section called Favorites, for me, this video is in there. It's called The Fly. So now I have to make my thing work. Can you hear it okay? Okay, good. it right there equanimity we it's not about the flies of life right and it's not about um, even more radically our first reaction to the fly it's about our relationship to the flies and especially it's about our relationship to the reactions that arise in us to the flies of life right and um, so Anyway, it's in that context, last perspective slide, that I want to say that where I hope to explore with you today is at the center of these three circles, uh, neuroscience, brain science, uh, psychology, and Buddhism. 
Uh, I myself am a clinical psychologist, neuropsychologist. Uh, my background is in the wild and woolly human potential movement of the 70s. Uh, rock and roll will never die. And then along the way, I realized if I'm going to make a living, I better go to Juilliard or the equivalent. Uh, so I went to grad school in psychology and got a PhD, became a psychologist. But anyway, that's my own background. But also, as part of that human potential uh, time for me, in 1974, I encountered uh, Eastern philosophy and religion, began meditating, uh, and uh, have, you know, I'd say I'm fairly conversant with the spiritual traditions of the world, uh, and certainly Buddhism in the last 20, 30 years or so, particularly the more Theravadan, Southeast Asian, first teachings, original teachings of the Buddha, so-called Vipassana, wing of Buddhism. That's my own background. So, this is a Buddhist workshop. Is a Buddhist setting. See, just behind me here. So I'll just I'll be directly teaching that kind of material. And as the Buddha himself said, always see for yourself. Take nothing on faith alone. The point of this is not to persuade you to anything, but to really just offer uh, perspectives, including uh, Buddhist perspectives, and then see what you think for yourself. Okay, that's also true, by the way for psychology and science. You know, it's not like, you know, yeah, you're supposed to believe psychology and science, but Buddhism you gotta be skeptical of. You should be skeptical of everything. All right, that's good. Okay, great. Okay. So uh, why don't I do a kind of a boom quick move through relationship between mind and brain, how to use